Happy Box Birthday, everybody! And now I shall treat you to the musical stylings of me. Happy birthday to Buck. <clears throat> okay, that is enough of that. Hello, listeners. It's your host, Asia. So we are very excited to have violinist Rachel Barton Pine back on the Classical Classroom. Um, she's putting out a new CD of all Bach music in celebration of his birthday. Um, and though we've talked about Bach before on the show, um, and I've learned about uh, his masses, and I've learned about his inventions, and so I sort of assumed that I knew everything that there was to know about Bach. Uh, it turns out that there is more to learn about Bach, and Rachel teaches me something completely new in this episode. I hope you enjoy learning it as much as I did. What else is there to say? Notorious RBP? Bach? It's going to be a great episode. Here we go. Oh, by the way, uh, if you enjoy this episode and you enjoy learning about composers like Bach... Make sure that you go to iTunes and subscribe to us and rate and review us because, you know, it's what Bach would do, I guess, I think, probably. Okay. <laughs> My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So, every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know. And then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today, all the way from a studio in Chicago, is Rachel Barton Pine, uh, who you have heard on this show a couple of times before. Rachel is an acclaimed violinist. She's currently on tour playing the great composers with orchestras all over the U.S. Rachel is also a member of the rock band Earth and Grave. If you're interested in her awards and affiliations, I'm just going to point you to her website where you can scroll and scroll and scroll through them. Rachel Barton Pine, welcome back to the Classical Classroom. Great to be here again. And and as if that wasn't a special occasion enough, it turns out that it's also Bach's birthday. I think he's going to be like 5,000 years old or something like that. <laughs> You've got a new CD of all Bach music of sonatas and partitas, and I'm hoping that you will teach me what those things are. But first, I wanted to ask you about the title of your CD. It's called Testament, which sounds kind of religious. What's the significance of that for you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's um, has sort of many layers of meaning. Of course, this cycle itself is testament to Bach's genius, and my recording of it is a testament to my life's journey thus far with this music, my relationship to it. Of course, it's also a testament to all of those who have you know taught me and inspired me about Bach over the years. But it's also a testament to the fact that Bach and his music and playing Bach's music growing up in my church, which is actually where I recorded the album, St. Paul's UCC in Chicago, um, that's really where I learned about the meaning of being a musician, that it's not just about, you know, doing these fun athletic pursuits, or it's not just about providing a pleasant diversion or another entertainment option, but it's about being a t conduit for something greater than yourself and then sharing that beautiful experience with the listeners so, to uplift their spirits. And, you know, whether I'm playing in my church or in a school or in a big concert hall, mm -hmm. you know, that's 
that's why I do what I do. Well, and and you seem to share that in common with with Bach. I was reading just a little bit um, before we were talking, and and you talked about how Bach sort of did what he did in the service of something greater than himself. Yeah, you know, for his creator, and um, you know, he signed a lot of his music, you know. You know, to the glory of God alone, and this sort of thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, whatever your belief is, I think um, box music definitely gets all of us, you know, to a to a place you know that's very spiritual and that's very elevated, and mm-hmm. you know, um, even box music that wasn't specifically sacred is still, you know, has this this real um, profound sense to it. Whether mm-hmm. it's lighthearted, happy music like the Partita Number no. Three, you know, joy can also be just as deep as yeah. something darker. So, okay, you just mentioned Partita number three, and your CD is uh, son- Sonatas and Partitas. I keep wanting to say Sonita, but that is not actually a thing. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that you will tell me what a Sonata is and what a Partita is. Yeah. What's a Sonata as compared to a Partita? Um, basically, in the 1600s, sonatas were very free form. Um, there was no standardization. And it was um, in the year 1700 with the publication of his 12 sonatas, Opus 5, that Arcangelo Corelli codified the two distinct forms of what we think of as a sonata. One is called a sonata de chiesa, mm-hmm. which translates to church sonata. Doesn't mean r- music written for playing in church, but it was written. It was music that if you wanted to play it in church, it would be appropriate and allowed to do so. Um, Uh The form of a sonata de chiesa or church sonata is slow, fast, slow, fast. Um, And usually the second movement has a lot of counterpoint, which is where various voices are in dialogue with each other. Yeah. Then, on, in contrast, the Sonata de, uh, de Camera, or Chamber Sonata, this is, mov- is music definitely not appropriate for church. It's suites of dance movements. Ah. And so kind of like your sacred and secular, your serious sonatas, which have titles, movement titles like Allegro and Adagio, mm-hmm. and then your suites of dance movements, which um, you know are like Alamon, Saraban, Courant, Jig, all those sorts of things. And mm-hmm. um, Bach, um, like many people who wrote collections, he did three of each, but unlike Corelli, which who did six church sonatas followed by six dance suites, Bach alternates sonata partita, sonata partita, sonata partita, which is really interesting and not what you would expect. And it's very interesting how he relates um, the two types to each other mm-hmm. in a progression as he goes through the cycle. Why do you think he did that? Well, I think he was just, you know, mixing up it up for variety, but also, you know, wanted the first ones, you know, to have a certain type of character and then the next pair and then the next pair. So it it kind of made sense to do it like that. I see. Um, I wish, I mean, you know, that's my speculation, of course. <laughs> I wish I could ask him. But, um. <laughs> you know, to us, from our perspective of the 21st century, 
You know, it all sounds like old Baroque music, but to someone from Bach's lifetime, they would have experienced the first partita as very much a throwback to a more 17th century aesthetic, the music of the 1600s um, and the Sarabande movement, for example, of that partita is much more flowing. It doesn't have these emphases on the second beats like the high Baroque Sarabands. It doesn't have a, a, a slow, stately feel to it. And that was very much how that dance was earlier on. And, of course, these variations that follow each movement, that was also a practice that was very common in the 1600s and had, was, was not really what was done at all by the time this cycle was written. So Bach was kind of paying homage um, to the past. And then the second partita with the famous Chacon is really in the mainstream musical language of the day, which was very Italianate in nature. one is the new modern fashionable French style. So it's almost like past, past, present, future. And Bach, of course, was uh, always very curious to learn about music from other European regions, um, Italy, England, um, France, etc. And having had the great opportunity to play a lot of French Baroque music in my life. In fact, I, I recorded an entire album called A French Soiree. Um, and so being very familiar with that language, I definitely tried to bring a lot of that flavor back to Bach, where he's clearly influenced and inspired by it. And, you know, his partita doesn't sound like something a French composer wrote, but it doesn't sound like normal German or Italianish Bach either. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's this wonderful hybrid, and I try to bring a lot of the French flavor out, meaning you know, the way I shape phrases, the way I execute trills, you know, just a lot of those little details. Yeah. And you wore a beret while you recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, none of these dance movements would have been meant to be danced to. There is certainly a lot of Baroque music, which is, you know, pleasurable for us to listen to, but was written for the utilitarian purpose of being danced to either for social dancing, court dancing, or on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was music meant to be listened to, but yet Bach is very strict in adhering to the forms of the dances. A lot of times for um, concert dances, um, you know, music for listening, there would be certain things that the composers wouldn't bother to have because you didn't need them. For example, at the end of each of the halves, there's a moment where the dancers would bow to each other. Well, there are no dancers, so they don't need to take a bow. So why <laughs> does Bach leave that measure in there? It's this obvious little tag at the end of the of the half. Well, I think he wanted you to imagine 
playing for a dancer or, dan- or a group oh. of dancers. And so this is where the imaginary dancers would take a bow. The fact that he left it in there really tells me that he wanted you to be playing it thinking of the dancers. And so your, your bow has to just inspire the dancer's feet to lift off the ground as you're playing it. Maybe the, the most descriptive movement is the very first one, okay. the Alamond, because it's in a very theatrical style. And I imagine that this would have been music for people to dance to on stage and maybe some kind of a production. Nice. I love looking at the manuscript of this set of works. Yeah. Even if you don't read music, you might want to take a peek at it. You can find it easily for free on the internet these days. Yeah. And it's you know, fun to see the personality of a composer's handwriting. We don't get that with today's contemporary composers because they write everything on the computer and it's all clean and neat and easier to read. Right. But we can't see the individuality of their handwriting in the same way that we used to. But for these pieces, the way that Bach uses the pen, I think he's almost telling us something about gesture. And so seeing how he writes the tales of his notes and things tells you maybe what you're supposed to do with your bow as you play that note. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so like apart from any um, like actual musical notation, he just the way that he was writing informs your playing. Absolutely, wow. or just inspires, you know, the the spirit wow. of what you're trying to create. And of course, for the repeats of these sections, I add a few little ornaments here and there because it was considered in very poor taste to ever do something the same way twice in the Baroque. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, in the first movement of his first and second unaccompanied sonatas, Bach writes out a lot of ornaments, and that was almost something that would have been considered rude back then, like (laughs) one jazz player telling another jazz player absolutely every note to play. Can you imagine? That would be unthinkable. (laughs) You're supposed to just give them the melody, and then they do their own thing with it. And it was the same in the Baroque. Um, So why the heck did Bach actually write out all of these ornaments? Well, I think he wanted to make sure that nobody did like too many ornaments or ornaments in bad taste, you know, be like where, you know, when people put on too much jewelry and then it just looks tacky. Um, So, um, and it's great for us, you know, all these years later that we have this written down record of what would have been extemporized back then. Wow. But you add ornamentation of your own in addition to to that, or well, you... no. In, in other words, the, you know the movements that Bach himself has ornamented, and which don't have repeats, then mm-hmm. you already have plenty. Oh, gotcha, <laughs> um, gotcha. Bach's okay. music is so profound and so beautiful, and just you know, in a category of its own, and. It's perfectly acceptable to play box music and not add any ornaments. You don't have to in the same way that it's really leaving it um, you know, bare and problematically so in certain works of you know, Vivaldi or Corelli or, mm-hmm. or even Bach predecessors like Westhoff. If you played a Westhoff slow movement and put no ornaments on there, it would be like, you know leaving the house in your underwear like you didn't get fully dressed. <laughs> but, um, for example, the sec- this movement that we've just been listening to and the, the third movement of the second sonata, which is a beautiful melody and does have a first half and a second half repeat, repeat I do add some decorations the second time round because that would have been the common practice, and I don't think there's any reason not to do that. Shall we hear uh, an example of where you did that? 
Absolutely. How about the Andante okay. um, movement of the second sonata? All right. Which is um, now we've been talking about multiple voice writing. Um, there was a there was a more than sixty year tradition of multiple voice writing in Germany by the time Bach wrote these works in seventeen twenty. And it was both an improvised as well as a composing tradition. In other words, people would make this stuff up and sometimes they would extemporize in front of people. Sometimes they would just brainstorm on their own and sometimes they would write it down and we call that composing, which is really just a codified inter- improvisation in a way. Uh-huh. It's a creation one way or another. Or some people say that improvisation is just rapid fire composing. <laughs> but in any case, um, this was a common practice in Germany specifically of playing things for violin all by itself that sounded like two or three violins. Bach, of course, took it even further and would sometimes sound like four violins because, you know, he could do it, <laughs> but, you know, being the genius he is. But um, there there are tales, like there's the, there was this guy named Bruns uh-huh. who used to actually sit on an organ bench. He would play two voices on the violin and a th- add a third voice with his feet on the organ pedals. Um, sort of like a one-man band there. Um, sort of ridiculous party tricks. Bach, of course, would have been capable of such a thing. He played the violin himself. Um, in fact, it was the first instrument he ever learned with his oh, violinist wow. father. And he was a great violinist um, and, of course, a master keyboardist. But, you know, he probably didn't play the violin and the organ at the same time because he had, you know, too much taste to actually indulge in that silliness. <laughs> but um, in this piece, we do hear specifically two voices, a, a repeated eighth note in the bass. Um you know, which is the accompaniment, and then the melody played on top of it. Hmm. Here you hear a little ornament of Bach's, this little decoration. That's all original to Bach. And now as I circle back to doing the melody again, Mm -hmm. I'm going to add a few of my own little decorations. I've been playing Baroque music with a historically informed approach since I was 14. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, you know, part of who I am as a musician. And it's easy enough to extemporize ornaments in the moment of performance, mm-hmm. if I so choose. But because this stuff is so technically complex with your what your fingers are having to do, it's a real finger twister to play your own accompaniment while you're playing the melody. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to risk um, trying to do an ornament and then realizing that my fingers got knotted up and I couldn't play the accompaniment in the middle of it. (laughs) So I actually, in this particular case, sort of wrote down what had come into my ear and then played that. In the last partita, um, a gavotte, um, you know, some of the movements... Um, exist in many countries, and Bach spells them differently in different of the partitas to, you know, really clue you in that they're not supposed to be the same style. Mm-hmm. Like he has a tempo de boria in his first partita and a bourre in his last one. He has a giga in the second one and a jig in the last one. So different kinds of jigs, um, uh-huh. sarabande, sarabanda. Uh, but a gavotte exists only in France. There's no such thing as a German gavotte. And mm-hmm. so this is a very typically French movement and um, has a wonderful lightness to it. Very cool. And you can hear one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, 
two, one, two, one, two, one. So there's this very specific set of emphases that go with each dance. You know, um, whether you're going away from um, a, a note or going to a note, the beat patterns that would have, of course, followed the dance steps, even if no dancers are doing steps, you still want to make sure the music is leading in the right direction. And I'm actually publishing... Um, a sheet music edition of the Six Sonatas and Partitas of Bach with Carl Fisher mm-hmm. um, to go with my album. And oh, I'm going wow, to include cool. all of those phrasings so that for anybody who hasn't done a ton of Baroque music in their life like I have, to let them know what these typical beat patterns are. As well as, of course, my fingerings and bowings and right. all that other stuff that right. you would expect in an edition. Todd and I, by the way, have been dancing the whole time that this piece has been on. <laughs> so my final question to you is it's a little bit broad and, and it's okay if if uh, you want to think on it for a second but I know that you are a big fan of other genres of music in addition to classical music and I'm and I'm but you're you're clearly very passionate about Bach I'm wondering if you can hear Bach's influence in music that's happening today and if so can you think of some songs or pieces of music where you hear that? Well, that's a great question. I, now, of course, a lot of the um, classic rock, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, a lot of those musicians were highly educated and studied a lot of Bach. Um, but I think, you know, with music education being not as widespread as it once was, mm-hmm. we're seeing the result not only in, you know, challenges that classical music might have, but also in the pop music coming out. Yeah. But I think anybody can benefit from hearing Bach in terms of their own musicianship, but it's also such great stuff that it almost feels like, I almost feel sad for anybody that doesn't have Bach to just enjoy in their life, you know, whether they themselves are a musician or not. And uh-huh. the more we can spread the word, the better. Even yeah. And the, the interesting thing is that Bach's music can survive a myriad of treatments. You know, there's Bach with, with a beat and Bach on electric violin and, <laughs> you know, Bach made into who knows what. But somehow Bach's music is still good no matter what you do to it. And that's really a testament to how amazing it is right there yeah and 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 so hopefully this podcast will help further spread the word of box awesomeness (laughs) rachel thank you for being on the show again and for as always making my job super easy well thanks for having me and i look forward to our next chat yeah me too all right take care take care I'll make sure to post links to Rachel's other Classical Classroom episodes um, in the article for this episode on our website. She's uh, Before, she's talked about Mendelssohn and Mozart, respectively, in the episodes that she's done. Um, that about does it for this episode. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org classroom. You can follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, SoundCloud, YouTube. You can also subscribe to us and rate and review us on iTunes, and frankly, you should. You can also email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Partada Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing crazy eyes. Thanks to the notorious RBP for being here today again. Always great to talk with Rachel Barton Pine, and thanks to WFMT Studios for hosting her. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.